Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today's episode is about the podcast The Band, A History, which is all about the incredible music group The Band. My interview is with Tyrell, who's the creator and host of that podcast. We talk first about putting together a podcast, uh, how he thinks about editing, how he thinks about outlining, how he thinks about organizing clips, and then we jump into a deep dive into the music and the background and the members of the band. Enjoy. Tyrell, thanks so much for coming on. First question, your final year of high school or secondary school, what music were you listening to? What songs were on repeat? Yeah, I have a very eclectic taste. It's, it's It has nothing to do with a lot of my current interests and in podcasting about the band, but some of the biggest artists I was listening to in grade 12 were uh, Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> I grew up a lot with Dave Matthews Band. Is you know, a lot of people in my family, my uncle and stuff really love Dave. And I still love Dave a lot. I know sometimes he gets a little flack, but I think, you know, the musicality and stuff is just phenomenal. Uh, so I was listening to a lot of Dave Matthews. But on the other hand, I, I went through a massive metal phase uh, and I was listening to a lot of thrash metal from, from the 80s and 90s particularly Megadeth, uh, you know, I think a lot of that music spoke to a lot of, you know, that teenage angst that I had, but it was also like political in a lot of ways uh, that I was interested in. Um, and, and, you know, as a teenager, you start going down the rabbit hole. It's like, you're talking about conspiracy and you're talking about, you know, not maybe as crazy as some of those conspiracy theories are nowadays, but, you know, general things like aliens in Area 51 and things like that. So I think that kind of spoke to me and I like the aggression and the speed of it and the technicality. So, you know, if I had to name two artists that kind of define my latter half of high school, probably be those two, which is funny because they're polar opposites. Right, right. And, and pretty different from the band as well, I think. Yeah, like I, I, you know, you can draw a little bit of parallels, I think, from Dave Matthews to the band, this kind of worldly quality to the music, the kind of mixing of genres. Uh, Dave is more of a jammer, more akin to something that you would find out of the tradition of like the Grateful Dead or the Allman Brothers. But I think lyrically, sometimes there's a connection uh, and musically the kind of richness of it and having multiple different instruments uh, and no real lead player, I think is really interesting. But yeah, it, you know, I never saw that connection until a lot later. And that wasn't the reason why I got into the band or anything. So yeah, very different. And you started a fantastic podcast. I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, there are, I don't know, three or four or five podcasts in, in my playlist that are just must listens every time there's a new episode. And yours is one of those. It's called The Band, A History. So again, I can't recommend to the listeners out there strongly enough to subscribe to that podcast. And you have a Patreon page of which I'm a, a member. So I also are patron. Patron, patron, pat it's Patreon, but then you say you're a patron, so I'm a patron. Yeah. Um, and that's patreon.com slash the band a history. Patreon.com slash the band a history. And I'll link to everything in the show notes. As I said off air, among other things, your work is an incredible appreciation, a love letter, really, to the band. And um, the the music that they've created has connected with so many people over so many generations. It's also, as I said off air, a work of incredible scholarship. So I'd kind of like to talk about three different things. One is 
your research process um, and what goes into that. The other is just about the band and, and the music. And then the third would be the, the technical side of, of creating a podcast. So let's maybe start with the podcast. What, um, what lessons have you learned through this process of creating a podcast, editing, promoting it? And I think you've mentioned before, this isn't the first podcast you've worked on and you're, you're in the creative space. So what, what lessons have you learned in this process? Yeah, well, thank you. Firstly, thank you for uh, the kind words about the podcast. I, I appreciate it. Um, and lessons I've learned about the podcast. I, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. I have been in the podcasting space a little bit, mainly uh, interviewing and, and more, more niche things. And what that helped me with coming into this is I think with podcasting, I think finding your niche is incredibly relevant. Um, with, with podcasting, I think there's a lot of saturation, like a lot of media. So finding your niche and sticking into it, you know, you might not be a Mark Marin and have like insane downloads, but you'll be surprised at how many you will find out there and what kind of dedicated base and quality base you will have if you find a niche. So the band was that for me because their niche in music uh, is, is quite big too. So um, there's that. But I think with a history podcast or the way I approached it in this history storytelling entertainment hybrid is that was incredibly difficult. Uh, I'm an impatient person. That's one of my, I, the qualities I dislike in myself the most. And when I get passionate about something, I get obsessive and I work real hard to, you know, make that thing, whatever it is. So when I decided I was going to make the podcast, I jumped straight in and I didn't think about it in terms of a strategy around releasing because the amount of the sheer amount of time it takes to put something like this together is incredibly it's, it's a lot of hours on top of having you know a full-time job and I should have probably stockpiled it a little bit more you know what I mean and and then came came out with you know one episode but had two in the chamber but I didn't and that has posed an issue in terms of like feeling like I'm racing the clock a lot and as a perfectionist I feel sometimes the product I put out well it's good and a lot of people like it I would have liked to spend more time on it but I also tried some things too that I was inspired to do I as somebody that was an avid listener to podcast I thought about what I would want to see um, so I, I wanted a history podcast where I'm exploring something in depth. I really like that. I like sound bites or clips from it. I wanted to experiment with putting music under the entire episode to give it kind of a rhythmic feel to help carry me along. I don't know if I, if I have a phobia, but sometimes when it's just a person's voice, depending on the person or the context, especially when it's not an interview, but when it, they're reciting something or talking about something, I have a kind of a cringe factor about it. So that's that was another reason for the music, uh, which has probably been one of the most controversial things about the podcast in terms of people's like and dislike of it, the music underneath. And I think mm -hmm. I've struck the balance. Why do you say that? Well, I think early on, I made a couple mistakes with it. Um, I think, first of all, I when I was editing it, I think I mute, I mixed the music a little too loud in the background. Um, I also think that there is a repetition factor that I wasn't really taking into account. So now the music's a little quieter. I choose from a little bit of a wider range of songs. 
I also think about what I'm saying a little bit more in that section and try to tailor the music. So for example, in, mm. in one of the latest episodes with Clapton uh, in the band, Clapton was meandering. He was a drug addict. He didn't know what he wanted to do. He was getting involved in all these musical projects. So I went and found more of a bluesy based kind of roots track that gave me more of that meandering feel. That way it kind of feels like it's more part of what I'm saying and less like it's just there. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think exactly what you're describing. Music can be an incredible, um, not counterpoint, but incredible sort of sweetener to what you're doing if it's um, if it's intentional. So it's not just, hey, I'm going to layer some music behind what I'm saying, but as you just described, you, you're doing this with intentionality. So you're collecting clips, you know, what you're doing, which is to some extent documentary work, um, which is also sort of my background. I sometimes think of it as a jigsaw puzzle, right? You're collecting clips and then you're organizing them and put the, putting them together. So how do you organize your clips? Sure. So the, the first thing that I do is I generally write for an episode, a 12 page kind of script, single space, just, I go. I generally put out a few headings of what I want um, and I have a bigger document that kind of details the overall trajectory of what I want to do, though I keep a lot of it in my head. I keep a lot of that knowledge just in my in my head. And I, and as a sponge of the band, I generally know where I'm going. I am confident in that. So I, I break out a Google document. I put my headings, I start typing. And when I'm typing and where I think there will be a clip break or a music break, I'll just put space and then I'll put a line like insert clip here. Sometimes I'll be a little bit more specific. Sometimes I'll just be like, I know I need a music clip here. I know I need I know I need to go find a sound bite if I can. And it can be a bit challenging because the band uh for the most part was very private. There's not a lot of interviews out there. There's you know there's bootlegs of performances which are becoming more prevalent, but it, it can be a challenge sometimes. But um leaving those spaces so when I'm done the scripting process, I start scouring the internet, forums, YouTube, Vimeo, Daily Motion. You find these things in the weirdest places uh, and going through that and finding a lot of those clips. Some of them, because I'm always watching band content and seeing what's out there, um, I save them away if I can. Links, I'll download a lot of them and put them on a hard drive just so I have them already and I know ahead of time what I need. Um, and those are some of the ways I, I think about getting clips or organizing clips. So it starts with a 10 or 12 page paper. Is yeah. there outlining that you do beforehand or you just sit down and you start typing? In the beginning, it was just starting to type really uh, with those headers that I, I kind of put in there to kind of guide me. Um, now it's a little different. I have this great guy named Oscar. He's a, he's a university student who kind of came to the band in university when he was in a Dylan class. Uh, and he found the band through Dylan, like a lot of people do. And it kind of went through like his own kind of religious experience with the band, like most of us do. And he reached out to me and he's been helping out. So now I outline a little bit more to help him. Uh, but he's, he's, you know, he's helping me research and he's really helping me write in terms of like, I, I think the hardest part of the whole thing is just getting it out on the page. Uh, I'm a better editor in a lot of ways, but I think that's, that goes back to writing advice that 
I just read one of the one of the legendary writers from The Simpsons talk about. He's like, writing just getting the first draft out is the hardest. Editing and re-editing and editing again is like the easiest part because it's all there. You're over that mental hurdle. So usually the first draft is, you know, discombobulated. It's messy. There's lots of spelling mistakes. There's a lot of inaccuracies, even things like that. And going back through and editing it and checking my sources and doing more research. And I'm a very fragmented writer too. I'm not like a burst type. I'm not going to sit there for like four hours and go. I'm going to probably write like 30 minute bursts. Uh, or when I find inspiration, usually it's really late at night uh, or early in the morning. Um, but yeah. Nice. In some sense, what you're doing is writing, and I'm putting that in quotes because it's ultimately uh, an audio production, but you're writing a history book, a really entertaining history book, but you're, you're writing history, a history book in real time. Um, so I, th I imagine one of the challenges is there are new themes and new paths emerging as you're going. Um, what are the overall themes of the story you're telling, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. I, I break the band down into a few different eras, and that kind of helps me create these verticals for things and thematic elements that I want to explore in each one. But the overall themes of the show is to explore kind of the rise and fall of a group that changed the American music landscape or the North American music landscape since most of them are Canadians. Uh, the next theme that I'm really taking a look at is how in a lot of ways outsider elements, whether it be drugs, whether it be people, whether it be, um, you know, just any exterior factors ultimately affects a tight-knit group. You know, these guys were one of the most tight-knit groups I think you can imagine. And I think for a lot of folks, it was really interesting when they dissolved because they'd been playing together for 16 years, even prior to like the quote-unquote the band era. But things tear people apart and exploring how that works. And then I have themes usually with each member. I think it's really important because there's a lot of myth-making around the band. The history is also incredibly one-sided and that's not a dig at certain individuals, but there have been certain individuals that have had the ability to talk more about it or their narrative pushed more. So I try to balance that with new information or other narratives. So for example, Richard Manuel, who passed away in the eighties, uh, he, his narrative has always kind of been about the insane music genius of, of a songwriter. And at the beginning of the band was along with Robbie, they were the creative engines of the band and how ultimately mental health, which is something that is just being talked about now, was the reason why the downfall for him happened. And with the mental health angle, the drug abuse is tied in. I think a lot of people prior to understanding it a little bit more, just like Richard was a huge drinker and he did coke and heroin. But if you dig deeper, you realize that this is a guy who had some serious mental health issues. And this is the catalyst for a lot of his 
issues and how ultimately his downfall in a lot of ways mirrored the downfall of the band. Uh, so that's one narrative. And each member has their own kind of narrative that intertwines with that as well. What is the background of Richard Manuel that, that led to his mental health issues? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a few things. It's also hard to tell because I think these guys were of an era that issues weren't talked about. They were shut down. They were internalized. Even when Richard passed away due to suicide, there was a general, you know, shock, which I find weird. Uh, there was there was talk of it being, you know, a joke gone bad. Uh, I think shame also kind of came into play for the family because, you know, suicide has a shameful connotation that I think shut down a lot of potential conversations about why he was the way he is, but he was, he was depressed. And I think that's not unheard of in artists. I think artists a lot are fragile and that's not a negative thing, but they, they, they experience emotion in different ways, which creates amazing art, but has that negative side effect of being a fragile human being. And he was most likely from every indication, he was a drunk by the time it was like 14 years old. So I think there is a level of, and it's hard to say definitively, and you don't want to say negative things about people, but like there must be some things that went on at home family wise. Um, but also I think that he was just a very uh, depressed individual and that manifested itself in different ways uh, with drinking. But then later when, you know, other substances was were introduced that became, became an issue too. But he's definitely not the only one. I think Robbie suffers from things as well. Levon did too. And I think a lot of people these days are finding out that they suffer from one thing or the other. And uh, there's so many ways you can combat that now, but not, not then. Right. One of the recent episodes that you posted, you mentioned Richard Danko's background and just how, uh, and just in terms of his father's occupation and, and, you know, how desperate and how poor it was. And then of course, what a shift it is to be part of eventually a global, um, a global band that, that is huge. Yeah. I think that if you look at most of the members backgrounds, they come from poverty or low class. Rick Danko, his father being, you know, wood chopper. Rick Danko was going to be a butcher. He was a butcher's assistant. And then he got the opportunity to go out with Ronnie Hawkins and he, he left at the opportunity. Uh, Robbie was a more of a city slicker, but he grew up in a part of town that was called Cabbage Town in Toronto that was, you know, notoriously very impoverished. Now it's very bougie and gentrified, but it was very impoverished then. Um, and he came from a background which at that time and still to this day, there is a lot of neg negative stereotyping. He was half indigenous which we still have plenty of issues with here in Canada. And he was Jewish as well, which, you know, those connotations exist as well. Uh, with, with Richard, he's small town, you know, lower middle class. Uh, Garth comes from probably a middle class as well. Uh, 
And Lee Vaughn comes from a very poor, like dirt farmer. That's his whole, you know, an album named after that. They were, they didn't even own the farm. They just leased the land and paid the man, you know what I mean, to farm it. So I think a lot of these guys, they, when they got money and got fame, it was a huge shock and nobody's really there to teach them how to deal with it. You know what I mean? And I think that played a huge part in a lot of the issues. Right. And, and these five guys and their backgrounds, I mean, they came together to create magic. I mean, you used the word mythical earlier, which is certainly, there is so much myth now built up around the band. It is hard to parse out what's myth and what's real, but their music is, is real and it's magical. So let's, let's talk music. Sure. Um, I don't want to ask you what's your favorite band song because that's crazy, but, but let me ask this. In the last waltz, what's your favorite performance? Wow, uh, that's that's also very difficult for me. Some of my favorite performances actually happen on the MGM uh, soundstage that weren't technically at the concert, but I really enjoyed their performance of the weight with the Staples. I think that is really interesting because the weight and the way that the band approached harmony vocals was very much influenced by Black singing groups, uh, especially the Staples. I'm a sucker for Emmy Lou Harris. So Evangeline, which was new for that film, for the film was very good. Uh, you can't go wrong with Muddy Waters. I think that a lot of the guys in the band held him in such reverence compared to other guests who were more contemporaries that the performance is very special. And then the quirkiness of somebody like Van Morrison is, remarkable but in terms of their own performances i think it makes no difference rick danko gives his best vocal of all time the emotional angle of it the vocal crack when he goes for that note the robbie solo paired with the garth saxophone solo and then i think the most one of the most iconic performances uh, the night they drove old dixie down you know, there was a lot of dubbing that happened on the last waltz after the fact, but Levon never dubbed a single part of his performance that is raw, unaltered performance. And it's probably the best vocal of the night they drove old Dixie down and he never really sung it again. So that is magical for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So that that film, that concert film directed by Scorsese was my introduction to the band, just maybe two years ago, um, very recently. A friend of mine had been telling me how great it was for years and you know, I finally got around to watching it. And then I just literally watched it back to back three times. Um, the MGM stuff, when Pops comes in. So this, this is literally my introduction to the band. I'm like, wow, this music's great. And then they go to the, to the performance of The Weight on the soundstage and, and Pops vocal comes in and it was just like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, so part of the myth you just referenced is, did Levon, was that literally his last performance of the night they drove old Dixie down? Have you been able to, to nail that down for sure? I, I can say pretty much definitively that it is. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why there's a lot of rumors. There's a lot of, of things that you have to suss through. Um, some people suggest disparaging comments Robbie potentially made about Levon and his family. Uh, that could be seen as insensitive. He even says them in the book uh, that, you know, the Helms were, there was, you know, racial undertones 
which is interesting because I think it's a little simplified. I think obviously a Southern individual from that era would have racial undertones, unfortunately, but also that the Helm family as a whole was, I think, incredibly progressive for their time. Uh, there was always Black music in the household. They were always going to watch Black musicians. There are stories of, you know, certain members of the Helm family sticking up for Black individuals in a very segregated area. Um, so I think it's a complex issue. And I think comments that Robbie May have made about that um, in connection to a song like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is interesting. There's also talk though that, you know, Joan, I believe if I'm not mistaken, yeah, Joan Baez did a cover of it that became very popular and that Levon thought ruined the song uh, and made it hard for him to sing. So there's a couple different theories out there. I'd probably actually lean more towards the Joan Baez one, but um, it, um, I think it affected the song. Also, it's like any musician, right? When you're known for a certain set of songs, but like everybody wants to hear that one, it, it kind of, especially Levon, like he was a great guy, he was super charming, everybody loved him, but he wasn't a conformist, you know what I mean? I think he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And if he didn't want to play Dixie, then he wouldn't do it. Yeah, Levon is, is from all accounts, definitely stubborn. And like mm -hmm. you said, all accounts, just beloved, mm -hmm. um, absolutely beloved. So speaking of songs, one of my favorites, or it might be my favorite song, by them, by the band, is just a, a deep cut on the last waltz, um, out of the blue, right? Uh, which is so deep cut you can't even find it on YouTube. Um, you can only get it on the album. Um, what do you know about that that particular song? Sure. So, out of the blue, is part of a section that was released originally on the, I think it was four albums, uh, last waltz album that came out with the film. And it's called The Last Waltz Suite, and it has a few songs in it. It's got, you know, The Last Waltz Theme, Last Waltz Refrain. Uh, it's got uh, The Blue, and then it's got my favorite song currently, The Well, with Richard singing. And Robbie, from, from what we know, Robbie, when he was crafting uh, the last waltz with Scorsese in the edit and him and Fabroni, Rob Fabroni, the engineer producer, uh, were working on the album. They went into the studio to add a few extra pieces to it, uh, including the last waltz suite, which seems right now that the kind of nucleus of that was Robbie, Rich, and uh, Garth. Those, those kind of guys were really involved. Richard sings on a lot of that stuff. There's a lot of great synth and layering that we saw in Northern Light, Southern Cross that Garth started implementing. And those three kind of were the brain uh, children of that and, and worked together to create those songs. What's interesting about when you say Out of the Blue is it's a Robbie-led vocal. Robbie didn't sing a lot. Um, one of the interesting things is oftentimes when Robbie would sing, which is one or two other times in their albums, often backed by a lot of harmony or Richard to support him because he was a very unconfident singer. I think Robbie, at least in that era, was a better singer than he gave himself credit for. But you have three legendary vocalists that could all just lead their bands on their own if they had to. So I think, you know, you kind of know your place. Uh, but Out of the Blue is really interesting because Robbie, I think, lets down some of the some of the, uh, you know, 
I think he, he's not as nervous there and he's really belting it. I think later on when you do his solo albums, he gets self-conscious again and does that whole deep husky voice that is, I think, frankly, very corny. But there is a very good version of what Robbie's talents are in the vocal department. And the song is just, uh, it's very sweet. It's well-produced. It's, uh, it's kind of catchy. So I, I think there's a lot of great stuff and it's a great point to note because I think with the well and with uh, the blue and even with like things like Evangeline would have been a really good indication of where the band might have gone in the latter part of the 70s and into the 80s experimenting further with synth um, experimenting further with a lot of things that you know ultimately might have been made them more popular uh, because into the eighties, as we know, you're getting more new wave, you're getting more synth, you're getting more of that kind of stuff that, you know, you might've seen Richard, uh, belt out a, uh, you know, a Bee Gees type performance there and they'd be having a song in the club somewhere, kind of like the Stones did with like Miss You and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, what did we miss? What could have been, again, it's part of the myth, right? They literally ended on this incredible high note, this in incredible, it's the greatest um, concert film ever, in my opinion. Did, did Robbie, I think there's some speculation about this. Did Robbie tell the band afterwards that they were still gonna continue to work together? So generally it's, it's very muddy. There's a lot of things going on. I, I think one of the first things is because there was infighting and a lot of folks in the band didn't like Robbie's controlling nature about it. Um, and because things, a lot of people don't remember or don't really realize that those first three albums, like the big three albums were all in succession in a three-year period. And when things started to catch up to them, like finances, songwriting credits, and just general distribution of things, I think that's when stuff started to sour. I think they were all incredible musicians that wanted to do their own thing. And with Robbie kind of controlling the band in a way that they didn't like, you saw a lot of them spreading their wings. Rick Danko signed a solo deal first prior to the ending of The Last Waltz with... Uh, Arista Records, Clive Davis, and you, you see a clip of that in the last Walt Tim showing Sip the Wine, which is a beautiful song, and he released his solo record in 77. That is amazing. Uh, it's very good. And then not long after that, Levon signed with ABC Records and started putting out his albums as well. So when it came to the last waltz, I think it caught some guys off guard because Robbie was like, I want to take it off the road. He got he got you know, suspicious of a lot of things that were happening with people around them dying of drug overdoses and things like that. But also Robbie, and this isn't um, a negative thing really, some people could take it that way, but Robbie is an opportunist and he saw that he might be able to make more of a career and his next opportunity wasn't in the band, which, you know, hindsight's 2020 and history is telling, I think it would have been staying in the band would have been his best move, but uh, he didn't think so at the time. He wanted to be a movie actor. He wanted to get into producing more, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there was a general consensus, at least in Robbie's mind, that they would be like the Beatles and come together every few years. They signed a record contract with Warners, a million a year or whatever, to produce six albums. That never happened. Uh, because I think the guys were tired of the controlling nature and the business interest, but also they wanted to do their own thing. 
So I think it was like wishful thinking and it never really had any merit. Yeah. Did they ever perform together again? Yeah, they did. Uh, the last time that all five members, original members performed together was at a Rick Danko um, solo show at the Roxy in Los Angeles. They all came up on stage and performed a few numbers together. Uh, there was a lot of famous people in the audience that night, a lot of famous musicians and actors. So there's a few pictures that have survived from that evening, but it was a, um, it would have been electric to be in that room. Uh, and then obviously the, the reunion band, uh, the reform band in the mid eighties came back together. Um, and, you know, Robbie worked with especially Richard and Garth on a lot of work in the eighties as well. Um, but the last time that that nucleus was together was 78. Mm. Do we have a, uh, sorry, there's a siren. In the, I'm in New York city. There's a siren in the background. Um, do we have a set list or anything from that show at the Roxy? Yes, we do have a set list. I can't name it off the top of my head, but um, I believe they played stage fright. They may have played the shape I'm in. I can be completely false here. I was just looking at it the other day, but the set list does survive online and uh, it uh, sounds like an awesome show. There might even be bootlegs. I'm not entirely sure about that point, but it's, it's possible. In your mission statement about the podcast, you talk about um, you want to create something for people who are new to the music of the band. Yeah. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about that, why that's important to you? Sure. For me, the thing about the band is they're a musicians group in a lot of ways. They're respected by the biggest players of that era. Um, and they had some commercial success, but I think they're, they're you know, it's dwarfed compared to Dylan or the Stones or the Beatles. But a lot of new people find them every year, whether it's through the last waltz or, you know, some other thing that they stumble upon. I wanted to create a resource for people like me who, when I get interested in an artist or a subject, I just start going down the rabbit hole. And if I can find a podcast on it, that'd be awesome. So I really wanted to introduce new people to the band. I wanted people with that new cursory knowledge of the band, like, oh yeah, I know the Wade, or I know Cripple Creek, or I know the night they, old, they, the night they drove old Dixie down. Those are cool songs. The band, yeah, a bunch of guys that hung out with Dylan in Woodstock. If they want to know more, they could dive deeper. Uh, they could learn about the beginnings. They could learn about the successes. They could learn about the failures, but they could also learn about a lot of the stuff that they did that you know, a lot of people don't know about whether it's sessioning with Neil Young or working with Clapton or producing records for Jesse Winchester, or, you know, you can name it. They've worked and their net is very wide in the in the 70s. So I think that is fundamentally important. The second point of that, and I still get it to this day, there are people that are in a lot of ways like me that know a lot about the band or grew up watching the band live or are one of those people that count themselves as a friend of the band, which there are millions, because I think they're just so nice that everybody thinks that, you know, they were friends with them who had a conversation with them. Uh, they're like, I know this, you're, you're not telling me anything new. Uh, and that's not, that was never the goal. If you're a super fan, that's awesome. You're probably not gonna learn anything from the show. It's more for like, if you have a friend that you wanna get into the band and have that same obsession that you do, 
direct them to the podcast because I'm going to try my best to not only give like the top line, but I'm going to talk about the reunion years. I'm going to be talking about soul albums. I'm going to be talking about the session work. And I'm also going to try to create a narrative that's more middle of the road and not just, you know, what we hear in Robbie's book and what we hear in Levon's book or what we see in the last waltz, which is also, I think, you know, a little bit biased as well. I want to try to get as much about each member that I can. And I hope to create like a document that really kind of explores everybody. That's exactly what you're doing. And that's exactly sort of my journey. I, I came to the band through the last waltz and then it's like, holy shit, this music is good. I think the weight yeah. was the only song that I knew. And then I found your podcast and it's like, now I'm just learning, you know, every month with each new episode, I'm learning more and more. Um, you talked about the net that they cast for someone who's new or newer to the band. What are a few of the songs or projects um, that, that various members worked on that you would say, start with these, these things? Sure. I think for anybody new to the band, the, the best place to start is the, in terms of the band's material, the first two albums, music from Big Pink and the second album, which is self-titled, but has been known as the Brown album for some time. Music from Big Pink is like the experimentation phase. It's right when they came out of touring behind Dylan and we're really experimenting with their songwriting chops. So there's a lot of great things on there. Um, you hear songs like I Shall Be Released, which is a Dylan song. And you hear that actually quite a bit uh, throughout movies and history and things. Tears of Rage is one that Richard Manuel wrote with, uh, with Dylan. Um, and then you have songs like The Weight on that album. And the Brown album, to a lot of people, is a masterpiece album. It is the defining document of Americana roots rock music. You have songs like Up on Cripple Creek, Across the Great Divide, things of that nature on that album that uh, really speak musically to what the band was able to do. Uh, another thing to think too is that the band was this group of multi-instrumentalists, multi-vocalists. So it's really fun exploring that because you have three lead vocalists, Richard Emanuel, Rick Danko, and Lee Von Helm. You've got two keyboard players. You've got Richard who also played drums on a lot of those tracks. A lot of people don't realize because Levon's drumming, but Richard played drums on a lot of those tracks when, you know, Levon would hop on rhythm guitar or mandolin. And you have some of the best co-writing, songwriting on those first two albums, which I think ultimately is the reason why they're so strong. Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel were the songwriting nucleus of that group. And when they worked together, some of the best work came about they don't get compared to, you know, the Glimmer Twins and Keith Richard and Mick Jagger or Lennon McCartney, but they were a duo in those first two albums and it worked really well. If you want to get to them in a different way, I would definitely try to listen to some of the mid to late 60s Dylan albums and live performances. Uh, the band is famous for playing as the Hawks behind Dylan on the 66 tour. That's infamous for going electric, but if you want to get into them, Robbie and Rick sessioned on um, albums like of the era of like Blonde and Blonde, Highway 61 Revisited, things of that nature when Dylan started doing the Roots Rock thing as well. But I think that's kind of where you'd probably start if you're just kind of getting in. And then for, for not, you know, not band albums, but other projects, you mentioned um, some of the people and in, in albums that they worked on. What... Um, what are three or four that you would direct people towards? 
Sure. Uh, I think, okay, this, this is my taste. So I would go for the Muddy Waters Woodstock album that won a Grammy in 75 that Levon Helm helped produce and played on. Uh, I think it really is a good example of the blues background of the band. They started as a blues band. I think you should definitely check out No Reason to Cry, which is Clapton's album. It has two band co-writes. Uh, the opener of the album was written by Richard Manuel, and uh, the All Our Pastimes was uh, co-written with Rick Danko and features Rick Danko and Eric Clapton uh, split vocal. And then they played on that full first side. You hear a lot of Robbie and Garth. I would check out Bobby Charles' album, which might, I believe it's on Spotify. It's a little bit of a deeper cut, but Bobby Charles was another Woodstock resident who actually started in the New Orleans music scene, which is very influential on the band as well. And he came up to Woodstock and Rick Danko co-wrote and produced his album. Uh, I think it's self-titled, but if you just type in Bobby Charles small town, small town talk, uh, you'll, you'll find it. And then maybe lastly, um, I'll give you two. Planet Waves from 74. Uh, Dylan and the band came back together and worked on an album and then toured it. It's a little bit more of an obscure album for Dylan because it kind of sandwiches between some of his bigger works with Blood on the Tracks and uh, Desire. It's kind of discombobulated. It's very rocky. It's very loose. It was recorded very quickly. There's a lot of great gems on there. Uh, Forever Young, Dirge, a few other tracks. And then I think uh, Neil Young is another great one. Not only is he Canadian, so shout out to Neil, but uh, On the Beach is a great album. It's very laid back. Levon and Rick play on that album. And uh, you can you can get some great deep cuts from there as well that kind of show the influence of the band and how it spread out to all these different artists. Fantastic. Uh, so this, this is a great primer for people getting into the band. You mentioned Americana music. How do you define Americana? That's a great question because today it means something that I think it was a little bit different than what it originally detailed. I think Americana music today is a term that is used for country musicians that aren't top 40 or folk musicians that have a little bit of a harder edge or even just folk musicians period. I think it's kind of like the alternative rock label for things that aren't rock, you know what I mean? Um, but I think the Americana term is interesting because I think uh, groups like the band Creedence Clearwater Revival, even like the Allman Brothers and things like that were the kind of pioneers of this genre. The irony, I guess, is that the band is primarily Canadian outside of Levon, but what makes that title okay is that a lot of the songwriting is a funnel from Levon Helm's experiences. His storytelling ability was taken by people like Richard and, and Robbie, especially Robbie, because they had such a good relationship. And Levon would tell these great stories and experiences. And with that, Robbie was able to help craft some of these lyrical contents that really speak to the, the essence of the band. Uh, a lot of normal characters, blue collar people, middle America, that's Americana in my opinion. And it's not so much a genre 
as it is kind of an approach to music, similar to country in a lot of ways of the kind of blue collar worker, you know, the myths around that kind of thing. I think a better title, honestly, for, for, the, for the band is Roots Rock because Roots Rock kind of defines that the Roots part comes from some of the main music of, of America. So whether it's blues or jazz or bluegrass country folk, those are kind of like the overall things. And I think that's what the band does well more than anything. And the Americana term came a little bit later, but I think Americana is more of a, a general idea that you might get labeled as if you're writing songs about, you know, the average person, similar to Heartland Rock in a lot of ways, similar to what Petty and Springsteen did in the 80s, 90s, uh, is kind of like that was the next evolution of like Americana, in my opinion. Ah, oh, that's a great breakdown. And in, in, to my mind, the band, again, it's sort of that, that name came later, but it's this very rare circumstance of the band in some ways both created this new genre and then also perfected it. You know, yeah. are you ever going to get better than them? It hasn't happened yet to my way of thinking. Tyrell, this has been great. Last question. What makes Levon's voice so engaging? <laughs> well, I think the most important part is a general phenomenon in singing is to kind of create the quintessential like American voice. And that's probably a Northern, a Northerner voice, you know, a lot of Brits sing like kind of somebody that you might find out of America, uh, all around the world. You kind of, you kind of get that. Levon Helm is unabashedly Southern. He doesn't change his voice. He leans into the accent that you see in a lot of like punk music. Uh, which is interesting, or even the Beatles early on, the Liverpudlian thing, it's like they put that on full display. I think Levon speaks for a lot of Southern Americans through his voice. Paired with the themes, people, when they sing along, they see themselves in Levon, and that's the magic there. Levon always considered himself a harmony singer with the band. Uh, same with Rick Danko, they considered, you know, Richard Manuel the lead singer. And Richard's probably the best singer. He sounds like Ray Charles, like nobody else. You know, Ray Charles is such a special talent. Richard could soar and he could go low and he was the most versatile. But I think what a lot of people like about Levon is Levon in the songs that he sang ended up becoming kind of more of the bigger staples, whether it's The Weight or Cripple Creek or The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And he has a campfire quality. You can go around a campfire with an acoustic guitar and you can sing Levon's parts and just feel everything in his voice and the textures of America. It feels like he is kind of the distilled version. If you had to put it in a bottle and put a cap on it, Levon Helm is actually that in the authentic way. He's not hiding anything. He's just unabashedly himself. Ah, Tyrell, this has just been great. It's so um, just been wonderful to sort of do a deep dive as someone who's who's relatively new to the band and and your podcast is such a great resource and is in addition to being this great work of research is so engaging. So thank you for that. Please tell everybody where they can find you. 
Yeah, certainly. So you can, you know, you can find the podcast anywhere online. If you type in the band podcast or the band of history, I put a lot of work in, in the Instagram finding photos, especially that I'm, I'm working on uh, as part of my research and kind of telling stories. So you can find us everywhere online, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, et cetera, uh, the band podcast, uh, drop me a DM or a message. I, I'll gladly respond and uh yeah you can find us there and uh, come check out the podcasts wherever you find podcasts wherever you like listening to your podcasts it's there fantastic thank you so much thank you appreciate it that was my interview with tyrell the creator and host of the podcast the band a history you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com benbo.substack.com have a great day